Let's pray. Father, thank you for another morning. Thank you for another day. We thank you that you have gathered us together as your children, and you've blessed us, Lord, with the remembrance of the truth about who you are and who we are as a result. So I pray that that would just grab a hold of our hearts today as we hear your word. I pray you'd be with our children as they are hearing your word, as they are learning to pray and learning, Lord, to worship and as they are in a place where we fully expect that you are present to them and in them, we thank you for that. Lord, as I preach your word, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, for you are my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Jesus, just as a side note, that Jesus meant to include in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you who come to church on dreary Sundays, for such is the kingdom of heaven. No, he did not say that. I'm not suggesting he should have said that. He said everything that he should have said, right? Um, well, I talked a few weeks ago about the kind of tension where uh, two differing ideas or differing values, right, can exist together, though they might seem to be in apparent conflict. I talked about that in terms of the already and the not yet, both that Christ has triumphed um, through the cross and his resurrection, and yet we still experience the world and its brokenness, and we await that reality to come, the reality that is yet to come. And we learn to live with many tensions in life as well as in our faith. So when we come to Mary, we arrive at another tension, because Mary is just a girl. And it's okay if at this moment a 90s pop song popped into your head, because clearly it popped into mine. There's no judgment. But clearly Mary is also not just a girl. The fact that she is just a girl is very important to the song that she's singing in our gospel reading today, the Magnificat. There are a couple of things that I would love to have happen when I go and um, when Christ returns or I go to meet uh, the Lord and, and to, um, when my spirit um, is fully united with the Lord, I, I want to hear Mary singing the Magnificat. I want to hear what it sounded like. And in fact, I also want to hear what it sounded like for the disciples and for Jesus to sing as they sang that hymn right before they left the upper room. I want to hear that. But she sings this song, and it's a song of great reversals about the God who sees and chooses the nobodies and the unlikelies, the just you and the just me. Moreover, he chooses the merely powerless and the humble and the willing through whom to enact his promised salvation. By the way, this song is important enough for it to be included in the daily evening service of the Book of Common Prayer. A constant reminder of how the kingdom came and is coming in the world, not through the usual suspects of power and pride, be they religious, political, economic, but through the humble family just waiting and worshiping by candlelight. That's why it's there through insignificant people with significant faith, even a tiny mustard seed's worth, the kingdom has come and is coming. But Mary, as I said, is also not just a girl because she is the Theotokos. She is, to the Eastern church, the bearer of God. She and no one else carry the incarnate Son of God to term in her own uterus. And she is a singular icon, so to speak, a forerunner of faith for everyone who willingly surrenders their whole lives, body and soul, present and future, to Emmanuel, God with us, saying as she did, let it be to me 
as you have said. So my goal today is to enlarge our hearts toward Mary, which means moving our thinking beyond her function to her faith. And in doing so, I hope to enlarge our faith in the God who came to her and still comes to us, just people. But also, as it turns out, not just people. So let me start with a story. And some of you in in the olden years of uh, Village Church may have heard this story uh, already, but I am a preacher, so that is going to happen from time to time. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, At the church I pastored from 2006 to 2013, we hired an administrator named Kathy. She was way overqualified, which clearly meant she was going to be way underpaid, but the hours and flexibility allowed her to care for her ailing mother and to be present to our office as needed. She made everything she touched better. She was just so incredibly competent, and she also happened to be Roman Catholic. In her first week on the job, she was hanging pictures, and the first and largest picture that she intended to hang started with a question. She said, is it okay if I hang this Madonna and child? And it was probably three feet in length, maybe three feet, you know, it seemed like it was square and she wanted to hang it in a 10 by 10 office. So it felt humongous. Without hesitation, my Protestant neurons fired. I wasn't even Anglican at the time. We're pastoring an Anglican church. My Protestant neurons fired and I said, sure, but Jesus is more than just child, right? And she said, looked at me kind of puzzled and she was like, well, sure, of course. And it turned out to be one of, our, uh, one of our first really fruitful conversations in the faith. For your reference, Madonna just means my lady in Italian. If your name is Donna, you're named after Mary too, whether or not your parents intended that. So, Madonna. These images of Mary and Jesus aren't just important to Roman Catholics. In case you're wondering, they were common in the earliest centuries of the undivided church. There is a Madonna and child from the second century found in the catacombs of Rome where the church worshipped and escaped persecution. It looks very similar to the ones that we see today. The truth is, my views of Mary at the time were weak and uninspired when compared to two millennia of faith. They were inconsistent. I certainly confessed belief in the virgin birth, and I saw great beauty in the story of Mary, but for the most part, she was just one of the Christmas characters we got around to once a year. And that has changed for me. I still think the, don't get me wrong, I mean, I still think the Marian emphasis of the Roman Catholic Church can get really outsized, but we need not overreact and miss what the church has always seen in her. And that's what I want us to see some of today. What can we see? Four reflections. Let me give them to you quickly and then I'm going to unpack them. Mary provides for Christ's humanity. Mary proclaims the radical reversal of the gospel and its enlarged scope. Mary represents a new Eve. And Mary is a picture of the church herself. So the first one, Mary provides for Christ's humanity and thus his duality as God and man. Fully God, fully human. In Mary's womb, think about this, both the natural and the spiritual, time and eternity, the mundane and the majestic, heaven and earth came together. In her In the functions of her cells and synapses, the fullness of Christ's humanity was formed, while the conceiving work of the Spirit imparts his divinity. 
Jesus was both God and man, so the womb of Mary's life welcomed this miracle, this tension, even this scandal of the incarnation of the living God. Mary believed in and bore in her body the facts of His flesh and the truths of His divinity. So you might say, in a sense, Mary became the first Christian. The first to embrace by faith who Jesus really was and would become. As the God-bearer, all of Mary's preoccupations about the, uh, or preconceptions about the Messiah and His salvation were transfigured and changed. So in this sense, she is a forerunner of our faith. When we live out our faith in Christ, we embrace what is an apparent scandal, attention of the God who came down, who became flesh, who took on our struggles and took on our sins. The God who shockingly wept and suffered like us and for us and with us. The body of our Lord, perfect in temptation, has made our bodies, our otherwise unholy lives, righteous and holy and welcome in the presence of God because He took on who we are and what we are. This is what redemption means, and it also means our new lives our new lives, conceived by the same Holy Spirit through the gift of faith, are reborn in Christ as their own intersection of heaven and earth, of time and eternity, of the mundane and the majestic. So Mary's a forerunner of our faith because she makes for the proclamation, the physical proclamation of Christ's humanity. Secondly, Mary's song proclaims a profound and surprising reversal of values and expectations and expands the reach of the gospel of salvation. She's the first to proclaim this. Let me just give you the big picture first. The facts of Christ's conception and his lineage are very, very important. Jesus is born into the lineage of David as was prophesied, but Mary is not David's descendant. Remember, her fiancé Joseph is. But Jesus is not actually born of Joseph, or that is, conceived by Joseph. Jesus is miraculously born of, conceived of the Spirit. So what is God doing? God is not only fulfilling the prophecy that the Christ would be in the line of David, extending the family and the Davidic and Abrahamic hopes, but also beyond those as boundaries, beyond bloodlines. The prophecy and the promise, like the love of God, will extend beyond all anticipated boundaries and exclusions. God is, is uh, shattering the categories. Mary may not realize it, but her song is actually pregnant with the reality that Jesus will not only be the Savior of Israel, but of the whole world. That what God spoke to Abraham was meant for his whole family, family of faith those born of the Spirit. What's obvious to Mary as she sings is how unlikely she is to be singing it, to be bearing God in her womb. The Lord, if you think about it, created history to make the, the palace available, right, for the Messiah's arrival, offering him all the advantages of a more sanitary and well-supplied home. Certainly the Lord could have done that. Surely some land-owning Jewish family with some influence in Jerusalem had a daughter who might provide more respectability. It made it much easier. 
There had to be a woman married into David's line who had already launched, so to speak. Providing more security. At least a little more predictability. But the Creator and the Redeemer chose a teenage peasant from a cow town in Galilee, awaiting her wedding day to a rough-handed laborer. God entered into a situation bordering on desperate. He was coming to the desperate, through the desperate. Through the poor, the unlikely, the forgettable, and even the seemingly cursed. Because if you were poor in Mary's day, it was generally believed God felt a certain way about you. Not very good, that is. You or someone in your ancestry must be to blame for your station. Something must be wrong with you. Something might be unrecoverable. Thirty-some-odd years later, Philip, having just met Jesus, says to his brother Nathaniel, We found the Messiah, Jesus, of Nazareth. To which Nathaniel replies, What good can come from Nazareth? I mean, Mary was just from the wrong neighborhood. One last reversal is worth mentioning. When the angel visits her, Mary's first response is understandable confusion, right? For all the things I've already mentioned at many levels, all the voices of her circumstances, all the artifacts of her surroundings are speaking to her obvious disqualification. And she's a woman after all. Could God really even see her, much less choose her? In her culture, it was actually a disgrace for a man to even appear with a woman in public, among the Jews, that is. A woman's word was worthless in court. Women didn't count toward the quorum for a meeting of the synagogue. Men in her day used to say this triple prayer, I thank God I'm not a Gentile, I thank God I'm not a slave, and I thank God I'm not a woman. You get in Luke's gospel, like it or not, the narrative flipped. Elizabeth is seen as the person of true and full faith while her priestly husband Zechariah is stricken dumb for doubt. At the temple, Simeon is content to die having seen the arrival of the coming one while Anna prophesies boldly going out to proclaim him. These accounts are not incidental. Luke is telling us something. Mary is not in the margins, nor is Elizabeth or Anna or later Lydia, Junia, and Priscilla, all whom Luke, the historian, is reminding us of. The otherwise voiceless are given voice in the kingdom, in the church, and for the world, starting with Mary. In Mary and Elizabeth, women are brought in from the cultural margins like the supposedly unclean shepherds out doing their lowly work. They're brought in. The apostles Jesus would call became actively engaged in a type of partnership with women that was unknown in Judaism and in the wider world. Fact. Jesus began this work and they took it up. A fair reading of Paul and his ministry, who unfortunately gets interpretively selected by a spectrum of readers, he reveals the same in his own ministry. Even though some of his practicalities we don't like. When we've gotten it right, though, the dignity of women throughout the world and history would be advanced by the church far and above any other societal or cultural movements. And Mary is a key part of this. In many ways, this is where it began. Third, Mary becomes a new Eve. In the narrative of the fall in Genesis 3, Eve is front and center, right? She's carrying the active dialogue of the first sin and its resulting curse. 
Adam's failure is no less great. And in my opinion, it's probably, it just feels worse. He was passive. He was abdicating, abdicating his partnership with Eve and their relationship and their responsibility to God as priests of creation. He's kind of hiding. He left her to vulnerability and deceit. He left her alone, which God had already said is what? It's not good. Together they were driven by the opposite of Mary's posture and desire. Because Mary said, let it be to me as you have said, I want what you are giving me. Adam and Eve said, let it be to us as we have said, we want what you are withholding from us. And as part of the curse of their rebellious independence, childbirth would become painful and frightening. What was intended to be the gift of God, new life from God, would become the withering work of the woman's body. So Mary then in the story becomes the central volitional human actor in the story of the incarnation, redeeming childbirth and the womb from the curse by accepting fully, though not without appropriate fear and pain and trembling, the will of the God she loves and for whom she's been waiting. Mary's life takes up the story of redemption. She becomes the fulfillment of what we call the proto-evangelium in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. What was it? On that dark day, the Lord promised that one day the offspring... The offspring of the woman would crush the deceiving serpent's head. His brutal bite, even the cross itself, will not prevail. So in Mary's body and through the body within her, flesh is being reconciled to spirit, already participating with God instead of rebelling against him. But let me offer this brief but important aside. We need to say this when we talk about Mary and we elevate her. Mary represents many things, including the power of motherhood and its place in the story. Her role is a vessel for life. It celebrates this unique gift of women and to women in childbearing. But in this sense, she isn't meant to be an icon of normative womanhood. In other words, not having a child does not mean a woman is any less of a woman. The church has not always gotten this right. The church has not always been appropriately careful with this. Scripture is clear that the Lord births a diversity of gifts in all of us and stories, right? In men and women, He brings forth life from our faith and our love in many ways, in many fruits. This is both biblical, this is historical Christianity. Children are a blessing, families are good, but the church of all people need not confuse the norms of the family of God with the cultural norms and pressures of our day. If we do, we're simply out of step. And if anything, Mary is an icon of normative devotion to God for men and women. An icon of faith. Fourth and lastly, Mary is a picture of the church. Uh, the Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, don't say that too fast, says this about Mary. He says she is, listen, the creaturely counterpart to the infinitely self-bestowing love of God. A selfless, life-giving extension of hospitality offering the bodily, necessary space and nourishment for the full expression of God with us. He calls Mary's body the room at Nazareth. Friends, I don't know if there's any better description of the church than this. 
the creaturely counterpart of the infinitely self-bestowing love of God. People, together, at our best, a selfless, life-giving extension of hospitality, offering the world the necessary bodily space and nourishment, the community, for the full expression of God with us to be born, with us and with others, to grow among us all. To the Galatians, the Apostle Paul likens the church to a womb in whom Christ is being formed. A community relying not on status or competence, religious or otherwise, but on the transforming love of God and the gift of His Spirit. The church willing to say, let it be to us as you have said, is a womb not for human conception, but for human cooperation with the power of the Spirit of God. And this desire for Christ to be formed in them is what Paul says is giving him a kind of birth pains. Together in Galatia, they're birthing Jesus in the immediate context of life together and for the world. Together at Village, we are too. Mary participates bodily with God in the ministry of Emmanuel. And so do we, together. And in this sense, the church too is Theotokos, the God-bearer for the world. So what does this mean for us? Let me just close with this. At the very least, it means we do not have a Savior who exists as an idea. The only Jesus who makes any sense of the story that's been told and died for for two millennia was attached by a real umbilical cord to a real woman. A girl, but not just a girl, who understood the story of dramatic salvation well enough to sing it as a song we can still sing today. A song of astounding reversals, of cascading salvation to the world, and divine hospitality. And this is the song we are meant to sing. It means that the reception of God's will for the world comes through the everyday reception of God's will for our own lives, and our own bodies, and our community through our own self-giving, through our own humility, and by discerning and rejecting other songs of parading power and individualism and idolatry and false freedom. It also means you are not the sum of your circumstances. You aren't the measure of your success or the limits of your status. You aren't reduced to your function or your failures. You aren't what they say about you. You aren't the bed you've made, you aren't the cards you've been dealt, or the nagging void you feel. You are the beloved. Seen, chosen, and liberated from the lie of your unworthiness, insignificance, and shame. You are not alone. The promise is yours. The promise is ours. And it says, blessed are you. So uh, Village Mary is always an evangelist to us, and she is again today. Her whole body, her whole hopeful future, the shape of her impending marriage, her family's reputation, and the contours of her once simple faith given completely over to God and radically changed forever. Christ was formed in her. Christ is being formed in us. And here's the thing. We too feel the birth pains and the longing for the world God wants and will one day bring and is already bringing. This is still good news. Blessed are we to hear it. So Lord, let, us, let it be to us according to your word. Let us be the people in place where heaven and earth unite for so great a salvation. And come quickly, Lord. 
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.